There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God, in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zacharias saw him. When he saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn away the children of Israel, turn many of the children of Israel, to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall, this, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. And we ask that we would not only uh, 
celebrate what has happened in the past, but that you would also instruct us here from it how to live by faith in the present. As we look for that great day ahead when your son will return. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, we uh, come to the, the first narrative in Luke's gospel this morning. And remember that Luke's gospel, his own words, it's a gospel that is intended to create certainty in us. Certainty, not confusion. Certainty, not doubts. Certainty, not unbelief. And in this first passage, he does something very interesting. Because God the Holy Spirit through Luke not only gives us the the first chronologically event of the New Testament age, he also gives us what in theology we would say is quite rightly the, the first thought we should have, a thought about the Word of God. If you and I are to be certain as we enter into this Gospel of Luke, What should give us the ultimate certainty to believe all that we read? Is it that Luke has interviewed many eyewitnesses? That's not a bad thing by the witness of two or three. Well, Luke has a number. But that's not ultimately what should give us enduring certainty about the gospel of Luke. What should give us enduring certainty is that it is the very word of God. Now, if we have no visitors here today, unless they're online, so I can look at you all and say, if I were to ask you a theological statement, do you believe that God's word is certain? I know what your answer would be. With me, you would say, yes. God's word is certain. And then we go out into our lives and there are a lot of a lot of things in our lives that would cause us to live in uncertainty. Can can we be honest about that? Theologically, we know that God's word is certain. Practically, we don't always live that way. And that's exactly what Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, brings us to at the beginning of his gospel of certainty to a man who is, do you you catch the irony of this? He is declared blameless and righteous by God. And he doesn't believe. He's a man with his wife who is blameless and righteous walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless, meaning they believe the scriptures and they study the scriptures as what it is, the very word of God. And then he doesn't believe the word of God. What a perfect place for us to start challenging our own confidence in what God says. So I want to look this morning in this passage 
I want to think in two ways. First, I want us to think about what this passage tells us about, about all the, the attacks on certainty that we engage in daily life. A lot, of, a lot of things would attack our certainty about the Word of God in daily life. Our text gives us a couple of them. Of course, there are more. And then having thought about that, I want us to turn to consider what are we to be certain about regarding God's word from this passage? What doctrines are revealed as certain? So first, three powerful areas of doubt that might eat away at our confidence in God's word. And I think in this passage we see time, community, and appearances all attacking our faith and confidence in God's word. So first, we could think about time. Does time or timing, maybe, uh, challenge our certainty? Does waiting ever cause us to doubt? Of course it does. Think of the timing we're presented with here in Luke chapter 1. We're told that this takes place in the days of Herod, king of Judea, and that places it in a context. And the context is God hasn't talked in a really long time. 400 years. Now, now we know he has been speaking through his living word for that whole time period. Through those scrolls that they read in the temple and in their synagogues, which righteous people like Zacharias and Elizabeth uh, pondered and sought to live according to, God was speaking all along. He was never far from his people. But for 400 years, there was no new prophetic word. Maybe we don't acknowledge that quickly enough in the, in the modern church. God hasn't always given new revelation in the history of his people. In fact, as we read in the historic books of the Old Testament, there were many centuries in which God didn't add to what he had already spoken. But the biggest of those chunks was the 400 years 400 years from Malachi to Zacharias. And by the way, the, the people were aware of that. Well, you can read in the book of Maccabees, an uninspired historic book from that period of Jewish life. They acknowledge a distinction between the scriptures and other writings of their day. So, God had been quiet for a while. His last word had actually been, remember the law of Moses and be ready because I'm going to send a herald before the covenant king, the covenant mediator. And then God just went silent. 400 years. Now, there were the righteous like Zacharias and Elizabeth who would have believed God's word that that was going to happen. But, Many in Israel, I, I hope you can see how easy this would be. Many 
might have said, yes, God said that, but didn't live thinking it would ever happen. Most people went through their days not expecting the Messiah to suddenly appear in the temple. Because time can erode our confidence in God's word. And it hasn't changed. Now the longest period with no new revelation is not 400 years. The intertestamental period, that 400 years, uh, now we're in a different inter-period. Inter-advental. Between the first and second coming of Christ. And for almost 2,000 years, there hasn't been a new prophetic word. We have the Bible. Will we believe God's word? Will we take him at his word? And Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 4, Beloved, I now write this second epistle to you, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken by the holy prophets, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Yes, we can struggle with time eroding our confidence in the promise of God as well. Where's the promise? It hasn't happened. The apostles seemed to have thought it was going to happen in their day that Jesus would return while they were still there, at least some of them initially. And now it's 2,000 years later. And how easy, uh, again, let's be honest, how many of your days do you think Christ could return today, tomorrow, a hundred years from now. It's easy to not really take the doctrine seriously. Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. Yeah, but I'm going to get to an old age and die. And not really think that he will return. So time can erode our confidence in the word of God. It can erode it in other ways as well, of course, can't it? I haven't overcome this sin and it's been years. Will God really give me the grace to walk in holiness? Right? Things like that. Timing can erode our confidence in God's grace. Another thing we see in the text that can erode our confidence in God's grace is community. And to me, perhaps this is the most heart-wrenching of the things that can erode our confidence in the word of God. Elizabeth prays in verse 25, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. There's community. There's her community. Now what a beautiful thing that Elizabeth can perceive. That it isn't a reproach from God. But a reproach from her community. 
God removes what the people have put on her. But how easy to forget that. Perhaps often to forget such a thing. Here she is, a woman with no child. And I'm I'm sure you've heard this before, but realize that women, so much of their honor was tied up in Israel with childbirth. And, And not in some kind of women aren't worth doing anything but having children. That that would be a false understanding of why it mattered to them. It mattered to them because God once in the garden said, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And through Abraham, it became clear to them that their nation was the nation through which a Jewish woman would bear a seed who would crush the serpent's head. And so every Jewish woman had that thought before her. You could grow up, have a child who could be the serpent crusher. What greater calling in life could you have than to be the mother of the serpent crusher? And even if you didn't bear such a child, you might be one who would bear a child who would bear a child who would bear that child, right? Having children wasn't, my life isn't worth anything better than this. It was, what could be more amazing to be a part of God's gracious plan of redemption? A plan of redemption that goes all the way back to the fall itself and the garden. And the enemy. And so we can see how easy it would go from that thought for the Jewish people to then say, what did you do? Who who said this woman or her husband that they cannot have children? Because, of course, you must be cursed if you're not one of the women who might have borne the serpent crusher. But what a thing to be in the community of faith and so be scorned. And not because you've chosen to not want children, but because God has not given you that blessing. And that's, this is not the only instance where that happens, sadly, in covenant community. There are many things that are no sin of your own. But within the congregation of God's people, sometimes, whether people are trying to put shame on you or whether you simply feel it in your heart yourself and assume that must have been what that look meant. Some of you have known such reproach, shame, hurt, I I hope you don't currently, but I would be foolish as your pastor to think none of you are experiencing such in the community of faith today. And it can easily cause you to doubt the promises of God's word, maybe just in this sense. Like William Cooper, the songwriter, you might feel, yes, 
All God's promises are yes and amen. But not for me. Because look at this circumstance in my life. I remember reading a few years ago uh, a book. I'm not necessarily recommending this book, I don't think. There are a number of things I, I didn't like about it. But the book's name was The Bridezilla of Christ. Which says it all, doesn't it? And author Ted Cluck recounts towards the beginning of this book his own struggle and his wife's own struggle because they believed God's word that the church was the glorious bride of Christ, that it was the place where God meets with his people and blesses his people and that therefore it's the place they ought to be. And yet they, they were barren and wanted children and God wasn't blessing them with children. Since then, he has blessed them, at least with adopted children. I, I can't remember if also natural born. But for a long time, they, they just didn't have children. They were in a church. And they would dread going to church on Sunday. Because they would get there, and the announcements would be going on. And another woman was pregnant for the second, third, fourth time. What a blessing from God. And here's the list of all the pregnant women. And they believed. What a blessing from God. They loved those women. And yet the pain they endured. They started feeling sometimes like people were looking at them. Whenever such an announcement was made. When I read that, my thought was maybe people were looking sympathetically, lovingly, concerned. Might make it hard for you. This, this first one under appearances, I struggled with whether this fits under time or appearances. But the question of unanswered prayer or seemingly unanswered prayer. Seemingly unanswered prayer can cause you to doubt God's word. Here's Zechariah. And the angel's first word to him is, Don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You'll have great joy. Your prayer is heard. What prayer? Different answers have been proposed for that. A friend of mine made a, a good, but I'm not yet convinced, argument that the, the language there could be indicating the prayers of the people outside in the temple courts, because we've just been told that they're praying, and the prayer context uh, statement by the angel is plural at first. So the prayers of the people, in which case what the angel is saying is, Zacharias, you're inside as the mediator between God and the people, representing their prayers through these in, this incense, and you need to know that their prayers for a Messiah, their prayers for redemption, their prayers for forgiveness are heard. And how will God respond? The herald's coming from your own wife who will come before the Messiah. An interesting argument, but I'm not convinced. I think the more simple reading 
is what the angel's getting at here. You prayed for something. God heard that thing. And the answer is yes. Your wife will have a son. But think about this. When did Zacharias pray with his wife for a child? He's about to say to the angel, I don't believe you because I'm old. And my wife's not exactly young either. That's not the voice of a man who yesterday was pleading with God for a child. That's the voice of a man who has long given up requesting that thing. So what do we see here? We see God through the prophetic word of the angel saying, your prayer is answered. Remember that prayer? And it might have been five years ago that he stopped praying it. Might have been 15 years ago that Zacharias stopped praying it. I suspect it was more like 20 years ago that this old man stopped praying it. Appearances would say, don't believe the angel. Biology works a certain way. You're, you're an angel. Maybe you don't understand biology since you're a heavenly spirit, but I'm old. Doesn't work, right? Appearances combined with timing on the prayer would say that this is not something to believe. And yet, God's word is certain. Let every man be called a liar. You see how appearances can cause us to believe a lie instead of the word of God. There's another thing that has, in terms of appearances, that that can erode at this. And this is seen in the text in terms of the, the silence of the priest. Out he comes. Comes out to the people. He stands on the balcony and he waves his arms and he doesn't say anything. Now, we might think that's just strange and maybe a little disconcerting, but that's, that's not fully understanding how this could erode at the confidence of the people in the word of God until we realize what he should have been doing on that balcony. You see, the job of the priest when he went into to offer up the incense, which was a symbolic thing that represented the prayers of the saints. He would offer up that incense and then he would come out onto the porch overlooking the precinct and he would lift up his arms and he would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 